I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's a warm, yes, a very warm welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3, various other frequencies, and on the web www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bose-Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, picks perfect summer reading, fiction and non-fiction. Linda Gilfillan, down the line from Down Under, reviews Flame in the Snow, the love letters of Andre Brink and Ingrid Jonker, of which she, Linda, was the copy editor of the English translation. Cindy Moritz gives us good reason to read Anne Tyler's gentle unwinding of A Spool of Brew Thread, with its endearing small details of ordinary family life. Beverly Rawsmuller spies revelations in John Le Carre, the biography by Adam Sisman. And Mike Fitzjames takes the thriller genre further with three cracking novels, two of them crime. Philippa Schaefitz keeps her cool and suggests we keep ours with Ice Kitchen, 50 Lolly Recipes by Caesar and Nadia Roden. Finally, Vanessa Levenstein reviews Santa Montefiore's Songs of Love and War, an epic romance with strong archetypal themes of land yeah, and love and war. Make love, not war, when you answer our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200 rand Wordsworth book vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks, give us your best. Thanks, Gary. Hi, everyone. Well, we starting through uh, the new year, and here we've got several books, some books that came out just before Christmas. Now, I've just got to mention one that is really marvelous. Uh, it's a book that we had as our Christmas choice, and it's a book that everyone who lives in Cape Town in the urban environment should be looking at and using. It's called Jane's Delicious Urban Gardening, Sustainable City Living by Jane Griffiths. And it gives you uh, hints and tips how to do it, how to grow your own vegetables. Now, I believe we all believe that the, the food price is going to be soaring this year. Now's the time. Let's grow our own vegetables. Let's recycle our water. Let's use our bath water on our vegetables. She tells you exactly how to do it, how to grow vegetables in a small space. And uh, she is an absolute expert on it. That's Jane's Delicious Urban Gardening, Sustainable City Living by Jane Griffiths, and it's 295 Rand. And then, just not moving too far from the kitchen, but here is a delightful new book that came out. It actually came out last year as well. It's called Recipes for Love and Murder, a Tani Maria Mystery by Sally Andrew. Well, I, I picked this up, and I thought, well... Let me, let me give it a try. I love any murder mysteries that have got recipes in them. It's just one of my silly quirks. And this takes place in Ladysmith in the Clan Carew and concerns an agony aunt, Tani Maria. She's the agony aunt. And uh, her column 
does uh, she helps with people's problems and she also gives them recipes to heal them through the problems and the recipes are the usual delicious stuff that we all would love to eat in huge quantities but we can't really so a murder happens in the town and Tani uh, Maria is there and she is the person who has spoken to everyone who's involved in it who knows the circumstances and who can help solve the murder there's a bit of love interest in the way. It's written delightfully. It's sort of like Alexander McCall Smith type writing. I enjoyed it thoroughly. That's Recipes for Love and Murder, a Tunny Maria mystery by Sally Andrew. Right, then anyone who's watched The Outlander on TV, which is by Diana Gabaldon, about, she's written about 10 books about the Scottish time traveller who goes through time from the Second World War right back to Bunny Prince Charlie, etc. And it has been spun out into a TV series. It's been hugely popular, and there is now a companion to it. So if any of you are watching the TV series and need a companion to work your way through all the complexity, it's here. It's called The Outlandish Companion, and it's by Diana Gabaldon, and it's 385 rand. To get a little bit more serious, we're in an election year this year, and there are lots of books that have come out about the current state of the country. This is another one that, that comes in, and I think it's quite pertinent. It's called Let's Talk Frankly, Letters to Influential South Africans About the State of Our Nation, and it's written by J.J. Tabani. And as they say on the cover there, it's a no-holds collection that adds value to the, the discussion and the discourse around the problems in South Africa. We've been in the grip of a worrying culture of acquiescence and silence after 1994. Such silence is largely driven by patronage and a misplaced sense of loyalty to party politics across the political spectrum. It's clear that speaking out has been left to a few voices that are seen as having nothing to lose. The addressees of the letter in Let's Talk Frankly of South African people of influence, and they go to Gwedi Mantashi, Helen Zilla, Muzi Maimani, uh, Zuma, and Kozazani Lamini Zuma, Steve Hoffmeyer, Baleka Mbeti, etc., etc. It's a comprehensive uh, book, comprehensively looking at the people in the country, and I think that it's, it adds a valuable voice or voices to the current debate. It's called Let's Talk Frankly, J.J. Tabani. And it's 250 rand. And the last one, a little bit lighter, but lighter in spirit, but of the heart. It's a new Mitch Album book. Mitch Album wrote that amazing book that was a huge bestseller, Tuesdays with Murray. And he's written several books after that. This is called The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto. It is a moving and soulful exploration of someone's life how they get through their problems, their disabilities, and hardships. And it's one of those that makes you cry in the end, weep in the end. Mitch Album, the number one New York Times bestseller author, it's called The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto, and it's 360 Rand. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. And here's Linda Gilfillin down the line from Down Under with her take on Flame in the Snow, the love letters of Andre Brink and Ingrid Jonker. It's a book that Linda knows well, for she was the copy editor of the English translation. It's fair to say that South Africa is known more for conflict than for love, and so inevitably is its literature. 
It is refreshing, therefore, that rather than a book about killing and corruption or yet another crime novel, a book of love letters has found the light of day. Not just any love letters, but the correspondence of two of the country's best-known literary figures, Andre Brink and Ingrid Jonker. Brink's status is assured by his rich oeuvre, while Jonker's legacy was guaranteed when Nelson Mandela read her poem, The Child, at his inauguration in 1994. The lovers corresponded for two years, from April 1963 to April 1965. In the first of his letters, Brink's salutation is full of promise and joy as he greets Ingrid, delightful little creature, he says. But this plummets to the grim resignation of his farewell letter with its rather leaden greeting, dear child. The correspondence traces the arc of desire, lust, longing, delight and despair expressed by two consummate wordsmiths. Andre writes, Darling, demonic little angel, if I'd slept in the same bed as you last night, neither of us would have gotten much sleep, and it would have been the whole sonata. This is followed by the poignancy of Ingrid's plea. You must believe in me. Do you know that no one has ever loved me? She says this despite her liaisons with other lovers, including Jack Kirk. Fortunately, Brink kept most of his correspondence with Yonka. He kept copies of his missives to his lover in faraway Cape Town, while he chafed in Grahamstown, trapped in a bourgeois life with a dull university job, a disgruntled wife, and a demanding toddler. Just before his death last year, Brink agreed to the publication of these letters, with his widow, Karina, playing an instrumental role in their publication by Umuzi. Two acclaimed literary figures, Leon de Kock and Karin Shimka, translated the letters, which are themselves a rich tapestry of literary references. It was an inspired match, with de Kock mediating the suave, ironic, witty, the often pretentious voice of the daring, innovative Sestacher, while Shimka conveys Jonka's rebelliousness, her paradoxical playfulness and pain. And for me, Editing the English version of these letters was pure pleasure, particularly with the erudite assistance of overall editor Francis Galloway. The love affair between Brink and Jonker played out against the backdrop of the grim 60s, with the consolidation of apartheid and, significantly for the writers, the growing threat of censorship. The lovers' lightness and love was anomalous in the grim Calvinism of the times and they desperately kicked against its claustrophobic mores, particularly in their collaborative work, Orgy, which was published under Brink's name. It's notable that much of the correspondence relates to discussion of each other's work, with Jonker's input especially significant in Brink's novel, The Ambassadeur. The love affair was fierce and fiery, and the correspondence seems to follow the plot of the novel. Two joyous young lovers burning with desire, yet doomed by physical distance and temperamental differences, with Brink eventually abandoning an ever more desperate Jonker for another woman. He picks up the shattered pieces of his life and moves on, while Jonker closes the door of her beachfront apartment one cold July night and walks into the sea at Three Anchor Bay, leaving behind her young daughter, her immortal poems, 
and her remarkable letters. The flame of their love flickered for two brief years in a cold and inhospitable environment, but it has been fanned to life in this prestigious publication. Flame in the Snow is a reminder that however chilly the world is, love flares up. And even though love may be consumed by its own flames, its immortality is assured by a work of literature such as this. As the voices of Andre and Ingrid echo across the decades and resonate into the future. And here's our easy peasy competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Sunday, February 14. The day to tell your cat you love her. The day, round about, what was it, 200, 300 AD, that. Valentine had his head chopped off by Roman Emperor Claudius II. Who was Valentine? Saint or tyrant? We're waiting for your answers on 021-401-1013. Cindy Moritz, Anne Tyler, A Gentle Summer Read. For fans of Anne Tyler, think of the accidental tourist, breathing lessons and back when we were grown-ups, her latest novel will not disappoint. A Spool of Blue Thread is a familiar chronicle of family life, at once unremarkable and surprising. In fact, the author said it best when she wrote, There was nothing remarkable about the Witchhanks, but like most families, they imagined they were special. The narrative revolves around the Witchhanks, Abby and Red, who live in a rambling old family home in a good suburb of Baltimore, where the author herself lives and sets many of her novels. Characters are so ordinary, they'll remind you of your own sister, father, mother or mother-in-law, and then suddenly there's a backstory that catches you off guard and forces you to look at the stereotypical tableau of the all-American wholesome family in a different light. We meet Abby and Red late one July evening in 1994 as they get an unexpected phone call from their elusive and youngest son, Denny. He calls to tell them he's gay, which he isn't, and promptly hangs up. They have no idea where to find him or how to call him back. If you cast your mind back to 1994, this is plausible. And so the story unfolds of Abby and Red, their four children and their families, as well as the unexpected scandal that underpins it all. Back to the present narrative, and Abby is experiencing bouts of memory loss. When Red has his own medical scare, their son Stem and his frustratingly perfect wife Nora choose to rent out their own home and move in along with their three young boys to keep an eye on the couple. Red and Abby's daughters, both married to men named Hugh, fuss over their parents on frequent visits, culminating in the annual family holiday at the beach, meant to be a bonding experience which always goes pear-shaped and will prove to be the last of its kind as they knew it. When there's a sudden bereavement, the Witchhanks must face real change, emotional and physical, as Red suggests moving out of the Booton Road home. It can be hugely emotional to leave a place that holds so many memories, which has been an anchor for the family and a kind of testament to the family's history. But sometimes those memories and that loyalty to what went before are more of a construct of what the family would like to believe than what really was. What starts out as a recipe for an American sitcom-style family story unravels to expose the raw components that together make up family life. 
This is the quality for which Anne Tyler has become known, the ability to dig beneath the surface and present a more meaningful portrayal of the family story. In one scene, a visitor arrives unannounced to join the family for a Sunday lunch. She's an immigrant, new to Baltimore, and one of what the family calls Abby's orphans. Atta, her name was, and in her accented English, announced that she did not eat American meat and would not be joining a church to make friends. Abby breezes in with a tray of iced tea to ease any tension. My family was exceptional, Atta tells them. Everybody envied us. We came from a distinguished line of scientists on both sides, and we had many intellectual discussions. Other people wished they could be members. Isn't that unusual, responds Abby, beaming, as Red sinks lower in his chair. Besides demonstrating how every family thinks they're special, it also gives Tyler the chance to show the Wichang family's resentment of the amount of time Abby gives to people who aren't family. This was just supposed to be family. Aren't we ever enough for you? asks Thor to Jeannie as they huddle in the kitchen. Without giving spoilers, let's say I flipped through to the beginning chapters once again when I'd finished, as there are clues and themes from the start that even though they're seemingly normal and insignificant, hold meaning once the story is revealed. A spool of blue thread was shortlisted for the 2015 Man Booker Prize, and while it didn't win, it struck a chord with readers around the world. It's an honest commentary of family life, self-deception, and what home really means. <laughs> family life, yes. And here again is our easy-peasy competition question. To win one of two 200 rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Uh, Sunday, February the 14th, the day to tell your cat that you love her, the day round about 300 AD that Valentine had his head chopped off by Roman Emperor Claudius II. Who was Valentine? Was he a saint? Was he a tyrant? Ring us with your answers on 021-401-1013. Beverly Rawls-Muller. Some surprising, or some not-so-surprising, revelations in John Le Carre, the biography, by Adam Sisman, and it's a big bumper of a book. The writer John Le Carre's father, Ronald Cornwall, was a dreadful man, an emotional manipulator of majestic proportions, who bequeathed heartbreak and penury to his two sons, as well as a slew of unlucky and often aristocratic investors. But fortunately for us readers, his younger son was able to put this misery to good purpose in his books. Biographer Adam Sisman has produced a monumental biography of John le Carre, its particular merit lying in the close links between his life and his more than 20 books, informing the reader intimately of the genesis of his writing and imagination. And this biography, therefore, will be by definition not much interest to those who don't know his writing. But for those of us who are devotees, and I am one, it is a treasure house. I adored it. All of his books, including those that stand shoulder to shoulder with the greatest English language novels written post-World War II, interrogate the themes of loyalty and betrayal, and to what extent love is the alchemy of that uneven mix. To call his work spy novels is to underrate his unique take on major themes, whether they be the Cold War, later wars of clashing ideologies, or the treacherous greed of corporates, tyrants, or cold-hearted, sleek-suited bankers and boardroom gangsters. 
His most my autobiographical novel, A Perfect Spy, remains amongst his finest work. But no matter how good the author believes his post-smiley novels to be, and some are undoubtedly fine, none quite match up to that great trilogy, Smiley's People. It is not the end of the Cold War that divides his work into two epochs, but that he had to say farewell to this extraordinarily complex, affectionately held yet enigmatic character after Alleginness had so superbly played Smiley in the stunning BBC series. And ironically, because of his brilliant portrayal, Guinness had quietly stolen away with this ruminous character, the plump Cold War spy with his earnest ethics, personifying the very antithesis of the author's real-life venal father, Ronnie, jailbird and perpetual spender of other people's money. Le Carre felt that Smiley never quite belonged to him again. Though his books made him rich and famous, John Le Carre feels poorly treated by the literary establishment, with some justification, because his books were too popular, often selling in millions, translated widely, including into what this biography describes as obscure languages such as Afrikaans. In recent years, this dismissive and perhaps jealous attitude has begun to modify, though perhaps too late to soothe the author, born David Cornwall in 1931. This biography recalls a character of Somerset Maugham, remarking of a writer that it is not enough to write one or two masterpieces. He must provide a pedestal for them of 40 or 50 works of no particular consequence. And I think this comment could well apply to Le Carre. Sisman has made the most of his unprecedented access to the author and his papers. The writing of this biography, 600 pages, took four years. All deserving writers should have such a biographer. I think in particular of J.M. Kutsia. For the late John Canamere's biography of the Nobel laureate achieves nothing near the interrogative and dissimulating skill of Adam Sisman. Highly recommended though probably only for John Le Carre fans. Mike Fitzjames, three cracking novels there, two of them crime. Good afternoon, Gory. I have three excellent books for your listeners this month. My first choice is The Mountain Shadow by Gregory David Roberts. In this book, Roberts takes up his storyline as revealed to the world in his hugely successful book, Shantaram. Now two years have passed since the events in Shantaram, which introduced a cast of unforgettable characters through Lynn, an Australian fugitive working as a passport forger for a branch of the Bombay Mafia. Times change, and in Bombay, the Mafia dons have been superseded by a younger generation. They have changed the rules, and now Lynn must make new accommodations to survive. In addition, of course, Lynn has lost two people he had come to love, nor, namely his father figure, Candabai, and his soulmate, Carla, now married to a handsome Indian media tycoon. Lynn returns from a smuggling trip to a city that seems to have changed too much too soon. Many of his old friends are gone. The new mafia have become entangled in violent and increasingly dangerous intrigues, and a fabled holy man, 
challenges everything that Lynn thought he had learnt about love and life. Still, Lynn cannot desert the island city and his beloved Carla. This is a fantastic story. My second choice is No One is Untouchable by Dennis Lehan. This is a masterpiece, beautifully set in the period 1920 to 1935, and so revealing about the Mafia and its expansion in both business and influence. Joe Cochran, once one of America's most feared and prominent gangsters, has everything he could possibly want. Money, power, a beautiful mistress, and anonymity. But in a town that runs on corruption, vengeance, and greed, success cannot protect Joe from the dark truth of his past. And, ultimately, the wages of a lifetime in crime will have to be paid in full. This complex and powerful novel is both chilling and heartbreaking in turns, and sets new standard of excellence in an already excellent genre. My final choice is This Thing of Darkness by Harry Bingham. An accident, a mystery, an unexpected tragedy, and nothing obvious to connect them. Until, that is, Detective Constable Fiona Griffiths. Searching for anything to take her mind off the tedium of a routine assignment, wonders if by any chance all three incidents are connected. On the surface, the security guard falling off a cliff, a strange burglary where the items stolen are returned, and a totally inexplicable and improbable suicide have no obvious ties. And yet, it could be her imagination. She would freely admit that her psychological health could be better, and the darkness she has experienced since joining the police force has worried and stressed her. Still, something is telling her that threads linking all three events exist. When she investigates further, she starts to see outlines of a conspiracy, so unlikely and on such a vast scale that it takes her breath away. Now they come after her. A really gripping read. That's it for this month. My choices were The Mountain Shadow by David Gregory Roberts, No One is Untouchable by Dennis Lehan, This Thing of Darkness by Harry Bingham. Enjoy your reading. Philippa Schaefitz, some nice lollies. Ice Kitchen, 50 lolly recipes by Cesar and Nadia Rodin. Quadrille Publishing, 290 Rand. On these hot, humid days, what could be nicer than an iced lolly? So a sassy cookbook offering 50 recipes for gourmet lollies is irresistible. There are indeed sensations on sticks, as promised. Light years away from the alarmingly synthetic frozen orange suckers sold commercially. Lolly mixtures are not churned like ice creams or sorbets, so their texture is icy and melts quickly in your mouth. I read the first recipe, orange and lemon it's called. It starts with a homemade syrup infused with orange zest then mixed with freshly squeezed orange and lemon juice. I flip to the next one. This time the syrup is infused with lime zest, then blitzed with fresh raspberries, the flavor intensified with freshly squeezed lime juice. 
there are more fruity ones. Lemon and ginger, blackberry enriched with cream, strawberries and cream, poached peaches and cream, blueberry honey and thick Greek yogurt. There's tart plum, sweet melon and basil, watermelon, lychee and lemongrass, coconut and lime. Pure mango for freshness, banana and chocolate for fun. A mojito lolly uses mint, lime and rum. Ruby grapefruit and campari for the sophisticated or white grapefruit and star anise to be dipped into perno before the first lick. A silky butterscotch and a rich coffee one. An Indian friend and talented chef, Sonia Bhatti's, insisted it should be included. Lots for the chocolate lovers. Chocolate and cream, Mexican chocolate, caramel chocolate, and a vanilla one dipped half in dark chocolate and half in white. My favorite is a Vietnamese coffee, freshly brewed, extra strong coffee, sweetened condensed milk and cream. These recipes did not happen by chance. It took endless experimentation. It took endless experimentation by Nadia and Cesar, both in New York and London, to come up with this remarkable collection. So carefully follow the notes on techniques and essential tips. Author Cesar Roden launched the very successful Ice Kitchen Carts in London in spring 2013, an instant success. He was inspired by his aunt Nadia Roden, an award-winning artist in both visual and culinary arts, whose imaginative ice lollies created a sensation in New York in 2011. Her first book, Granita Magic, was nominated for a Gourmand Award. Nadia is the daughter of the acclaimed food writer, Claudia Rodin, grandmother of Cesar. So the name of the book again, Ice Kitchen, 50 Lolly Recipes by Cesar and Nadia Rodin, Quadril Publishing, 290 Rand. Dietrich Wagner's Intermezzo for Nana. Who was Nana? Anyway, James Grace on his incomparable guitar. Vanessa Levenstein, a readable epic romance from Santa Montefiore. I'm going to be reviewing Songs of Love and War by Santa Montefiore. The British author Santa Montefiore's life reads as a romance novel. She's married with two children, a family friend of the Prince of Wales, and Santa also happens to be a best-selling novelist. Songs of Love and War is set in Ireland. The Deverell family live in West Cork, in their castle Deverell. In 1900, three baby girls are born, Kitty Deverell, one of the heirs to the rambling castle, her cousin Celia Deverell, and then from the other side of the social, political and religious divide, the daughter of the family cook, Bridie Doyle. The Deverell family are Protestant and English, yet sympathetic to the plight of the Irish Catholics. However, in spite of the Deverell's benevolence, the castle in which they live was built on Irish land. The novel sweeps ahead, taking the reader on a passionate and page-turning journey. Kitty Deverell falls in love with Jack O'Leary. He is Catholic and fighting for Ireland's independence. Yet it's not only war that places an obstacle to Kitty and Jack's love, but also Bridie, who too loves Jack, and Bridie's brother Michael, whose obsession with Kitty has cruel ramifications. 
to add to the mix are devil ghosts whom only Kitty and her grandmother see, and the curse which was placed on the castle by one of Jack O'Leary's forebearers. Fortunately, we don't have to say goodbye to the characters at the end of the book, as this is only the first of the Derville Chronicles, with the second due for release. As the author has said of her own writing, I'm not a Tolstoy. I write a good yarn. I, for one, am looking forward to discovering where Songs of Love and War's yarn is going to lead. Vanessa Demstein, uh, reviewing one of Santa Montefiore's novels, and Santa's husband, the historian Simon Seabag Montefiore, has just published The Romanovs, 1613 to 1918, which is warmly reviewed in the current Spectator. Let's hope it lands here. And that's it then. Thank you for being with us, and happy St. Valentine's Day to today's winners. Just let me find the piece of paper. Um, today's winners are Diane Bloch and Joan Slingsby. We'll ring you straight after this. Do stay by your telephone. It's Matinee Up Next with Sharon Swimmer and Amanda Burter's book kisser at this same time on Wednesday, February the 17th. Do go to www.fmr.co.za for the podcast of this whole programme in due time. From production engineer Mwande Lobi, from Rick Everett, who compiled the music and kept the show on the straight and narrow, and from me, Gory Bose-Taylor, it's happy reading. You have been listening to Book Choice, brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. Mm-hmm.